The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're looking at Chapter 22 for those of you who have been following along in Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart. The title of this chapter is In the Dead of the Night. Sounds like a good movie. Actually, it's a great story. It's a story that is often retold that Ajahn Chah tells of spending uh, a couple nights in a charnel ground as a young monk. And uh, some of you know that in Thai culture, uh, there's a lot about ghosts. It's just part of the culture, uh, believing in ghosts, being frightened of ghosts. So, of course, he grew up in this culture. And part of the reason why, why it's encouraged for practitioners, nuns and monks and even lay people, is that it really brings right to the front of our experience this very powerful fear. And the way we are as human beings, uh, whether we're aware of it or not, we're really being controlled by our fears and our desires. It seems like, well, I'm deciding. I mean, that's how it always seems, but... When we're really honest, when we look carefully, we see how strongly our behaviors are affected by fear. And we don't even notice it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we find ourselves dialing our friend on the phone, and we didn't realize that we were just feeling a little anxious, and we want to comfort ourselves by talking to a friend. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to talk to a friend, but what's interesting is that uh, like unwillingness to just be there with the uneasiness, the anxiety. Because there's always that option, right? We can call the friend or we can turn the radio on or, you know, whatever we do to modify or escape from any difficult feeling, we always have two options. We can attempt to escape from this uncomfortable feeling or we can recognize, oh, this uncomfortable feeling is like this. And just allow it to be. The uh, image that's used sometimes in the Buddhist tradition is of one of those big water buffaloes or ox that they use in the fields, to plow the fields. And you might have seen it, you know, sometimes they have a ring in the nose and then a rope tied to the ring. And even a small child could get that big beast to follow it. And uh, it's like all life long, the beast does what it's told. If it's tugged this way, it goes that way. If it's tugged this other way, it goes that other way. Of course, the beast is probably hundreds of times stronger, maybe even than the adults, for sure the kids. But it doesn't want to feel that unpleasant feeling when, you know, the little boys or little girl is tugging one way, but it wants to go the other way. I mean, it could very easily, it would hurt for a second or two, but it could very easily do what it wants. But it doesn't. And this is a powerful image for what happens to all of us, where we have these nudgy little desires and these nudgy little fears, and because we don't really want to look at them, we, in a sense, do what they tell us to do, run, hide, get, consume, because we're afraid to just feel that uncomfortable feeling that comes with fear when we're not distracting ourselves by acting out that fear, like running away from what we're afraid afraid of. 
So as I share the story from Ajahn Chah, his nights in the charnel ground, where they, it's not like here in Minneapolis, where our cemeteries are quite nice, you know, they're almost like a, nicer than some of our parks, actually. Um, there, especially at that time, probably 80, 90, 100 years ago, when Ajahn Chah, well, let's see, he was a young monk, so he's in his 20s, and, uh, so maybe in the 1930s or something like that. You know, they were burning the bodies above ground. They build a little platform, put some wood underneath, burn the body that way. And it was a messy place and little creatures eating what is left to eat and everything else that you might find in the jungle or the woods. So what is our charnel ground? I'm thinking about the places where there's very real fear, and then reflecting on, well, what is my relationship to that fear? How much effort do I make to avoid addressing that fear? I mean, of course, one of the big ones is death. Like, how much do we avoid being reminded of death, our own death, or anybody's death? Maybe you have an older relative, an older parent, and just to notice the resistance that maybe you feel. Or maybe when you are interacting with those people in your lives, you know, like not wanting to really notice certain things. You know, like our fixation in this culture on youth and beauty, you know, it may not be so much that we like youth and beauty, as nice as that is, as it is a convenient way to ignore aging and death. It's like when we sort of see wrinkly skin, flabby skin, or whatever you notice. I just had my birthday, I'm now 55. You know, we notice these things, and it's like a little disconcerting to notice these things. I'm having all these problems with my eyesight, and, uh, you know, normally feel like we can count on these things. And then that just begs the question, well, what actually can I count on? So death, aging is one thing. Being, you know, being in public, speaking in public, having public responsibilities can bring up that fear as strong as death, probably, for some of us. We can be um, afraid of certain, you know, just being near high, like up high, looking down, can be just bring up that deep fear. Or fear of making a fool out of yourself. Like what we do to avoid making a fool out of ourselves. Oh, I'm not going to go there. I don't want to make a fool out of myself. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to make a fool out of myself. Like how many fun activities have we avoided because we're not an expert at it? And we don't want to like be a beginner in front of everybody else or even in front of ourselves. Or I'm just not going to take that up. Something that isn't fun or even appropriate, but... We just don't want to embarrass ourselves. We just had fear even around disgusting things, like cleaning up after a dog or a cat or being around blood. Or You know, it's interesting. Even when we know we're safe, there's just that strong disgust that we feel. And we just don't want to know that side of life. We want things to be orderly and clean so we want to have a real sense, because in a way these are teachers for us. They're doorways into 
our mind, our heart, that parts of the mind or heart that we don't normally get to see or meet, but we really need to see and meet them. And don't assume that on the surface, like if it's public speaking for you or dog poop or whatever it might be that brings up this resistance or fear, don't assume it's really about that. It's really, it's, a, it's about something much more subtle, the heart rejecting the way that it is. I mean, you may not like those words, but you get the sense it's, it's that instinct, that habit of the heart to reject, to draw back, as if that could be a useful strategy in life, like, because it's already this way, right? But to, it's like sticking our head in the sand. It doesn't really change the way that it is. You know, hoping my partner, my wife will take care of the cat mess. You know, like just pretending I didn't see that. She'll see it. (laughs) And besides, it's her cat. (laughs) That's what my mind always says. It's her cat. I was on retreat, and I came home, the cat was there, so it's her cat. She has responsibility for it. (laughs) Except when the cat's really cute. So this is what we do. You know, we we have these ways of um, seemingly protecting ourselves, but as a practitioner somebody interested in this practice, then in a skillful way, we want to recognize where the fear is in our lives, and we want to go there. And that's what Ajahn Chah did. You know, he had, he knew this fear of ghosts and the fear of the charnel ground. And uh, as a young monk, he was always looking for just the right time, just the right place to do this charnel ground practice, which is a old tradition in, in Buddhist practice to go sit in a cemetery. Still done today. My wife, Wynne, was in Thailand a couple of years ago with uh, um, a monk, uh, Ajahn Chanako, who, who will be teaching here this summer. And they did uh, they spent a couple nights in one of the charnel grounds in Thailand. So, but he was always looking for just the right time, the right place to do this. And finally, one night, he realized there's never going to be the right time. That's just another avoidance strategy. You know, where we think, well, I'll do this. I'll finally face this. I'll finally do this. Maybe some of you are still there with your taxes. I'll finally do my taxes, you know, when everything's just right. When the stars align and I feel good and I, I'm not sleepy and then I'll do my taxes. And it just sits there. It's this big monster creeping around that we can't really face and look at clearly. Oh yeah. This is not what I want to do. But just because I don't want to do it doesn't mean it isn't useful to do. So, he grabbed a novice and took off to the Toronto ground. And as he approached uh, and uh, set up his, oh, I know. Uh, so he was there in the in the cremation ground, and some people came in with a body, carrying it on a little rack or something, and they buried this body. They didn't burn it, and uh, then they took the frame that they had carried it into the cemetery with, and they built him a little platform to spend the night right next to where they had put the grave because that's what lay people do. They're supporting the practice of the monks and they know why he's there so they'll put the spot where he's going to practice right next to the the recent grave. And so what could he do? So he set up his little, it's called a glot, you know, that circular thing and then you hang a mosquito net around it and uh, that's where they would spend the nights um, out in the woods 
in the forest. And so uh, immediately once they had left, and he made the novice go far away so he'd be alone, and uh, he wanted just to crawl inside of the mosquito net. And when you're, you know how that is, I'm, I'm sure a number of you have been backpacking or camping. It's like even though the tent is only a little piece of nylon, we feel so much safer in the tent than we do outside. I mean, it's really interesting if you haven't done it to sleep outside at night. It's a different experience than even being in a tent, let alone a house. And it's the same thing. He talks about how that mosquito net seemed to be like a fortress. And he really wanted to get inside, but he made himself do walking practice and then sitting practice inside and walking practice. And he got through the night. It was really the fear was kept him up all night. But uh, And he was so elated. He felt so confident. He thought, okay, this isn't so bad. Probably tomorrow night, this next night, I'll be able to have good sits because I won't be afraid anymore. So he, he got a little arrogant. Um, and so then the next night, right before, like uh, near the end of the afternoon, the town people brought in another body. And this one they started on fire to burn it. And uh, right next to where his uh, little campsite was, where the platform and his little mosquito net was. And uh, and so as they left, of course, just the flickering of the flames and the cracking. And he decided to, as he, after walking practice, he decided to sit with his back. It was right behind him. Because that even brings up more fear, doesn't it? Like, at least, you know, we're right there. So if we need to open our eyes, we can handle it. But to turn the other way, and uh, you don't know what's going on. And so he was sitting there in very, very intense waves of fear, one after another, one after another. And then at some point, hours into it, he heard uh, stepping, walking toward him. And uh, couldn't tell, like, was it a dog? Was it a water buffalo? Was it a... <laughs> he didn't know. And he got even more frightened. And then it walked around him and then walked over to where the novice, in the direction of where the novice was. He just kept sitting with his eyes closed, refusing to open his eyes, refusing to move, just there with the fear. Looking at the fear, not judging the fear, not a saying, no, I shouldn't have fear, but just letting fear be fear. Let it move. And then about a half an hour later, that whatever it was, he never knew, came back, and it st- uh, stood right there in front of him. And he says in this uh, description, you know, as if whatever it was was doing this right in front of his closed eyes. <laughs> but he just stayed there. And then uh, I'll read a little bit from his uh, description of this. And you can find this, even if you don't have the book. I'm sure this is online because uh, it's been recorded in a number of publications that are on the Internet. And if you probably Googled In the Dead of the Night by Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Chah and Charnel Ground, you'll probably get this article. It's just a recorded Dharma talk that he gave. I mean, a transcribed Dharma talk. So this is that moment, you know, when it was right in front of him, and he just, he held steady. He thought, you know, this is the time. And, and earlier in this talk, he's saying, you know, I, I, I understood that I had to look at this fear, because it was this fear of ghosts or this fear of whatever it is was really there governing his life in a way that wasn't helpful. So he he had a very strong resolve. So this is how he describes it. There was only fear welling up inside my chest until it felt like a tightly stretched drumstick, drumskin. Well, I'll just leave it as it is. There's nothing else to do. I said if I weren't even touching the ground, 
and simply noted what, what was going on. The fear was so great that it filled me, like a jar completely filled with water. If you pour water until the jar is completely full, and then pour more in, the jar will overflow. Likewise, the fear built up so much within me that it reached its peak and began to overflow. What am I so afraid of anyway? A voice inside me asked. I'm afraid of death, another voice answered. Well then, where is this thing, death? Why all the panic? Look where death abides. Where is death? You see, you might have had this experience in your life too. When we get pinned into a corner by life, you know, whether it's financial fear or relationship fear or whatever it might be, I mean, generally we resist, 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 but at some point we comprehend that we're completely beaten. You know, there's, it doesn't, it doesn't help to resist anymore. And that sounds like the place he got with the fear that the mind gave into the fear. And there's like only one refuge left, which is understanding. Like once you realize you're not going to escape, then the only thing left is to understand what's happening to you in that moment. And that's what began to happen as these questions organically arose in his mind. Like, what am I afraid of? What is this that I'm afraid of? What is it about the sound, you know, the sound of stepping? It isn't the smell of the burning body. It isn't even ghosts. What we're ultimately all afraid of is non-existence, right? I mean, one way or another, we dress it up, public speaking or whatever it might be. But we're really afraid of some some idea of annihilation. And it's really that it's our idea that something that we think is solid solid ground for us isn't actually solid ground. That's what we're dealing with. And so then the question, well, then where is this thing, death? Why all the panic? Look, where death abides. Where is death? And he realized, well, death is right here. I mean, it's not like we find death later. It's, it comes with the package. Or another way of saying this, that uh, you know, we, we don't like the insecurity in our life. We don't like that things are uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen to us, and we don't like that. But that uncertainty is already here. This moment is already uncertain. You get birth, well, you get death. And so this, uh, uh, this exposure, you know, we're already exposed. I've had this insight in different ways many times in my life where, like around doubt, for example, is one, one time, to realize, you know, like whatever it might be that you have doubt about. Like, let's say you have doubt about a relationship. Your boss, does your boss respect you or not? Or is she trying to fire you? You know, looking for a good reason. So you have a lot of doubt. And we can look at that and we can realize that this tenuous, uncertain situation already is the way that it is. You know, either she's trying to get rid of me or not, you know, thinks I'm the best thing ever or thinks I'm the worst employee ever. But in any case, it's already the way that it is. Our life is already as tenuous as it already is. So when we get back into that corner and we ask these good questions, we realize that 
it's already this way. It's like, where are we going to run to hide from death? Where are we going to run to hide from uncertainty? Or where are we going to run to hide from being a limited human being, having an imperfect personality? There's no way we can hide. It's already this way. And you see what a relief that is. It's like, oh, okay. The only thing that makes death unpalatable is that somehow we think there's an escape. But once we really get this great mystery, I mean, we don't even know what it is, which is sort of ironic that the most frightening thing in the world for us is something we don't understand. We don't know. Does anybody here know what death is? I mean, we know often it's painful. The approach to death is painful. But I don't think that's what we're really afraid of. There are a lot of things that are painful. I hear giving birth is painful, but people still give birth, right? Certainly relationships are painful, and we still enter relationships of all kinds. I'll read a little bit more here. If death is within you, then where are you going to run and run to escape it? If you run away, you die. If you stay here, you die. Wherever you go, it goes with you, because death lies within you. There's nowhere you can run to. Whether you are afraid or not, you die just the same. There's no way to escape death. As soon as I had had this thought, as soon as I had thought this, my perception seemed to change right around. All the fear completely disappeared, as easily as turning over one's own hand. It was truly amazing. So much fear, and yet it could disappear just like that. Fearlessness arose in its place. Now my mind rose higher and higher until I felt I was in the clouds. He described, um, you know, he continued to sit all night through the night. And at some point he just cried and cried. He didn't judge the tears. He didn't indulge in the tears. It was like a cathartic experience for him. And then waves of insight, like deeper understanding of the nature of the mind, the nature of experience. And... uh he woke up, uh, he woke up, he got up in the morning after light and, uh, uh, went to urinate and there was blood in his urine, he said. And that same sort of dynamic of like, you know, there he is all alone thinking, oh my god, I must have bust something, you know, just the intensity of the fear, you know, maybe I broke something. And, uh, and then that same relationship to fear came up, you know, he looked right at that fear like, you know, that he's got some internal problem. And he said, well, maybe true, maybe not. I don't know. But I'm not going to go crazy with fear. And I'm not going to take it up. And that's such a powerful teaching for us. You might have even heard the Dalai Lama. He often quotes one of his favorite uh, passages from Shantideva, this, I think, ninth century Buddhist monk and saint who wrote a famous... um, description of a bodhisattva, somebody who's dedicated their life for the benefit of all beings. And in that uh, in that book, Shantideva talks about this basic predicament, you know, if there's something you can do, well then do it. If there's nothing you can do about the situation, well then there's nothing you can do about the situation. So in either case, what is the reason to be afraid? What is the reason to be worried? If there's something we can do, let's do it. If there's nothing we can do, 
there's nothing we can do. It's a very, you know, it's like, it's just interesting how we have come to believe that fear is functional. That we invest in it, we feel it's appropriate. I mean, I, we all do, I think. But we can change that little by little. And this is the training that he's inviting us, you know, from the reason he's telling the story, I assume, is he's in, he wants us to take this up as a training. Not necessarily to go to your biggest fear. Probably he worked with all kinds of fears. You know, as a monk, you've got so many rules. I think for the, the male monastics, it's like 227 rules, and for the females, it's about 20 more, um, for the bhikkhunis. And, all these rules, they, they kind of create a bit of a, a pressure cooker for yourself. Like, you can't do this, you can't do that. You have to eat, you know, your meal before noon, and then you can't eat. Well, you can just imagine how much fear would arise. Like, oh, I didn't get enough to eat that day. Or all I got was rice. You know, and these little things can get amplified, you know, as the mind obsesses. You know how that is. It's like, you know, we forgot to bring our lunch. And all of a sudden, it feels like we're going to starve. You know, like, forget about all the work I need to do. I've got to figure out how I'm going to get food. It just seems like life or death, these things. And Or, you you know, did make a call. We can blow these things, these little things up into being the most important thing in the world. Well, we have to solve this problem. And so he's had a lot of experience. Now, the question is, are we going to take this up? in little ways, so that we see that force, that it's really a force in the mind of fear, and, and actually it's very much the same as the force of greed in the mind, and are we, you know, we can take up situations where we're going to be able to see it clearly, oh, this is that fear, like just using food as an example, you know, we could say, when you go home tonight, uh, don't eat anything, not because it's wrong to eat something, but so that you can see the desire and the fear of not eating something. You know, oh God, I haven't eaten since. And you fill in the blank. So you just get to see wave after wave of reaction to not eating. Or tomorrow, just decide not to eat lunch, for example. And just see the greed and the fear that come up. To see that just because the mind is afraid or the mind is greedy or wanting doesn't mean that we have to act on it. And it's such a relief to know we don't have to follow through. Because sometimes we can't follow through with it. Or it isn't wise to follow through with it. This is Ajahn Chah, a little later in this chapter. He says, This mind of ours, these defilements, if you follow them, they cause trouble. The more you follow them, the more the practice degenerates. In real practice, you sometimes amaze yourself with your zeal. When other people practice well or not, whether other people practice well or not, don't take any interest. Simply do your own practice consistently. Whoever comes or goes, it doesn't matter. Just practice. Wherever you are still inept, right, caught in greed or caught in fear, wherever you're still lacking, that's where you must apply yourself. If you haven't yet cracked it, don't give up. Having finished with one thing, you get stuck on another. So persist with that till it's finished. Don't be content until then. Put all your attention on that one point while sitting, lying down, walking, watch right there. 
he gives the example of a mother, you know, in Thailand, they often have the houses on stilts, and sometimes they have the livestock underneath. And he gives the example of a, a mother with a young child who goes down to take care of the animals, but her mind is on that little kid upstairs, you know, and doesn't, like, listening to see if the kid falls. Even though then she's not right there, she's still really attentive. And Ajahn Chah is using this as an example. So if there's a place where there's some fear in our life, wherever it might be, we want to see it as an important teacher. We want to respect it, whatever it is. And we want to keep close to it, keep reflecting on it, keep bringing it up until we become very familiar with it. And again, it's not because we're morbid or we like that unpleasant feeling, but we're challenging it. We're not believing that how it's presenting itself to us we're not believing that that's the full picture, whatever it might be. I, I think I mentioned this to some of you before, but I got into this practice in 1982 uh, as a young adult after college, getting obsessed with death. I had broken up with a girlfriend I had been going out with for a number of years, three or four years. And then after that, so my whole life opened up. You know, you know how it is. You're in these obsessive relationships, and then they're gone. And... Uh, you don't know who you are or what's important. So I was in that space, and uh, and uh, in that space, I, I, you know, just interested, like, what am I going to do with my life, which a lot of people in their 20s wonder. And the obvious question about, well, what does death mean? And uh, so I really carried this with me for months, you know, for at least six, eight months. It was the most important question in my mind. I was reading about it. I was thinking about it. I was talking about it. And uh, what does death mean? What does that mean? Until something just broke. You know, I, I really did some meditations on death right at the beginning of my meditation practice. And uh, in, in my own little way, I mean, not, not to the degree that Acha Cha is talking about here, but in my own way, really faced what I was afraid to face. And something shifted in the same way. It's, and, and really exactly that same way where there was as if an impenetrable wall, this is not okay, to this is not a problem. And the difference isn't that, you know, somehow I, I had a vision of life after death or something like that. It's not that at all. You know, I'm, it's just as much a mystery to me now as it has ever been. But what changed is who, like the understanding of who owns that experience. It's like we assume whatever it is, whatever we're afraid of, we assume that that belongs to me. If you're afraid of embarrassment, you assume that embarrassment belongs to me. If we're afraid of death, we assume that whatever we think death is, it's going to happen to me. But when we look carefully, we don't see that ownership as we superficially imagine. And that's what the contemplation does. That's why it's so useful to use greed and fear. Because these intense states of greed and fear always involve a very strong sense of self. So it really allows the practice, you know, mindfulness, to look at, well, what is this? Where is this fear? Where is this desire? Who does it belong to? So we're actually looking directly at the experience.
This is Acharyam. Our practice is to be content with little, to be natural. Don't worry whether you feel lazy or diligent. Don't even say I am diligent or I'm lazy. Most people practice only when they feel diligent. If they feel lazy, they don't bother. But monastics shouldn't think like that, or you know, serious lay practitioners. When you are diligent, practice. When you are lazy, practice. Don't bother with other things. Throw them out. Train yourself. Practice consistently day or night, this year or next year, whatever the time. Don't pay any attention to ideas of diligence or laziness. Don't worry whether it's hot or cold. Just do it. This is called right practice. So one thing we can do you know, to begin this, I'll give you some ideas of how to approach the fear in your own life. Because if we're not directly looking at the places of fear or greed in our life, we're probably just digging that hole deeper. The tendency to run from fear, the tendency to follow greed, to act on it. So we have to resist it. And those of you who've raised children, I, I used to be a school teacher back in the 80s, and... Uh, we know that kids will ask for a little, and if you keep always giving them what they ask, they'll just ask for more and more, just like adults. <laughs> so, at some point, either we or some authority figure that cares about us has to say, that's enough. And we do this all the time. I mean, most of us stop eating at some point. You know, we stop taking, stop watching TV at some point. We don't just do it continuously. So at some point, we are drawing that line. I don't care how much fear comes up. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm willing to feel, like even if you're in the middle of a really good novel, you know, at some point, even though you really want to know how it ends, you put it down because you've got to go to sleep and you have to work the next day. And we're willing to... <laughs> <laughs> Did I trigger something? <laughs> so, we already know how to handle that feeling of putting something down or receiving that fear. As much as it's unpleasant, we understand that just continuing with it really is like going to kill us, literally, if we did just kept doing it, whether it's drinking or eating or entertaining our mind. So it's more about bringing this into consciousness, like this skill we have to turn toward the experience we're feeling and not just act it out. And you can work with the five precepts or the eight precepts. These are good places to train. Like there's the first training is around not killing. So you have a spider in your house. You know, it's just really easy to kill that spider. And then you don't have to have a fear about, like, is it going to crawl on me when I'm asleep? Suck my blood? Or at least, you know, freak me out. And so it's like to befriend it. Okay, well, I don't know. I'm just going to let it be. Same with a mosquito. You've got a mosquito in your tent or in your home. You know, you could go through fits to get rid of it. Or you can just leave it alone. So we take up that training not to harm. I mean, and you can just play with it any way you want. It's say, Let's say you're a meat eater, and you can say, okay, one day a week I'm not going to eat meat. You know, and then there's that person with the, offering you that delicious, delicious chicken salad. You know, the next day, 
And it's like, literally, it's going to kill you to not receive it. But to just experiment by saying, okay, I, I'm not going to take it today. Thanks, I really appreciate it, but I'm not going to have any. And just to see, and it won't be just probably one way, but wave after wave. What, are you crazy? It's such a silly rule. You could do it the next day. But you see, it's not going to kill you to not have it. And you know that in your bones, and you can really get resolved in that place. Like, I know it's not going to kill me to not have this today. And to really look at how my life, this life, this mind and body is being governed by these relatively superficial Feelings like, i got to eat meat today because it's good tasting. Well, yeah, it may be good tasting, but it's going to be completely fine not to have it. So that's what I mean by these little, in these little ways. The second precept is undertaking the training not to take anything that's not given. And this is just a very interesting place to practice. You know, you see an interesting uh, pen on the floor, and even the second day it's still there. But it hasn't been given to you. It's not really yours. No, you can pick it up and leave it for somebody else to take or put it in a generic drawer that's not your drawer. But to not pick it up. and Just use that as a training. The third training is to uh, refrain from sexual misconduct, not having affairs, not having sex with people who are in committed relationships, but not with you. <laughs> um or depending on your particular relationships that you, commitments that you have, not to harm with our sexual energy. And, you know, it's so easy to justify flirting. Well, I'm not really going to do anything. Yeah, but why are we flirting? And what's the point? You know, we're kind of testing the waters. Might something happen here? Even though maybe both are in a committed relationship. So... This is another place to look at fear, look at desire. The fourth is undertaking the training to refrain from false speech. It can be really scary sometimes to uh, practice right speech. You know, afraid. Like sometimes my speech, you know, it's really about, in subtle ways, really about like uh, uh, sort of protecting my point of view. And, but maybe I, in that moment I can't speak skillfully, but I really want to protect my point of view. You know, but to just keep quiet and to take the consequence of whatever is going to unfold from me not speaking up. You know, and that it can be a huge fear, like the whole thing is going to go this direction. You know, and my whole life will be destroyed, or the whole all of existence will go down the tubes just because I'm not in this moment speaking up saying what I need to say. That's how it feels, to me at least, sometimes. Like, it's deep. To stay quiet is really hard for me. For other people, the fear will be speaking up when you really should be speaking up, but you're afraid to. You're afraid to say what really you are the right person to say right now. And then to just step into that role and to say what you need to say, even though it's really scary. And the fifth precept is to undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind. And again, it's like so easy to want to dull out in different ways. And there's three additional precepts that sometimes people take when they're, especially when they're doing retreat practice. And uh, I'll just, I won't give the literal translation, but I'll just say how I practice with them because it makes it more accessible, I think. So the sixth precept that some people use at times is to undertake the training 
to refrain from indulging in food. So, like in monastic practice, you, like I mentioned, you don't eat past midday. So you're not eating any substantial food from 12 o'clock until daybreak the next morning. That's such an interesting training, but you could just work that out in a way that makes sense in your life, like not using food as entertainment. So you go home, and you know how it is, like, I'm not hungry. I don't actually, my body doesn't actually need food to be healthy, but I'm bored, or I want something interesting to do so I can eat, because that's interesting to do, or I've worked really hard today and I need a reward. Those are just different ways of indulging in food as entertainment. But we could take a resolve, at least for a day, to just eat in a way that keeps the body strong and healthy, but not entertain it with interesting foods, diverse foods. And it's just like, you don't need, we don't need to salt food so much. I'm not saying forever, I'm just saying like, for one day, you know, just to eat plain food, and just enough to be really healthy and comfortable. And that's just a, see the fear that comes up. Like, oh, but I'm going to, because what the mind does, it begins to generalize like, what happens if nothing ever, ever exciting happens to me again? <laughs> you know, I never get Thai food again. I never get, you know, whatever your favorite kind of food is. I'll never have that again. Just oatmeal and whole wheat, <laughs> whole wheat toast and steamed vegetables. I mean, we think that way, and it's scary, even though, you know, so many human beings would be so grateful to have healthy food, enough healthy food. But doesn't that, it would be traumatic to all of a sudden hear, you know, whatever it is, whether it's chocolate or sweets, that these are things we can really experiment with, and it's in a very healthy way, with no risk whatsoever. The only thing that's going to come from this sort of ex experimentation is insight. We're just going to understand the mind better if we decide for a day or two not to have anything sweet or not to use salt or just to have plain food or just to have one bowl. Like that's one way you can experiment is you just have a nice-sized bowl that you're pretty sure is going to keep you alive and you just eat that bowl. That's it. Whatever goes in that bowl. Or sometimes like I'm so much on my way home, want to go to the co-op and get something and I'll just have to, you know, you have to play with yourself, like, well, okay, you're not going to, I'm going to put my foot down, we're not going anywhere, we're not going to buy anything, but you can eat whatever you want that's in the fridge, <laughs> right? or, which generally, the way my wife and I take care of this issue of our minds is we generally don't buy anything interesting, and when we do, we eat it, usually right away. <laughs> so generally, there's not so much interesting in the fridge. And then it, then it really like, well, maybe I'm not hungry then. If I actually have to, you know, cook something, well, forget it. I mean, if it's not like junk food you can actually pull out and eat. And then that tells me something like, well, maybe I'm not actually hungry. That I'm not willing to prepare food. The seventh precept is undertaking the training to refrain from indulging in entertainments and adornments. And so this is another place to look at fear, where we just say, okay, tonight, no TV, no entertainments, including the Internet. You know, it's like, and I'm not going to die, pretty sure. And like all those little tricks, well, I just have to check something on my email. Yeah. And you know, it's so easy once it's up and you've checked the email, it's just so easy. Well, 
And it's instinctual for a lot of us just to see, you know, what's in the news or what's happening at this site or another. And so just to say no to that really shows the force of fear in our life and greed in our life. And we want to see it if it's true. If there really are these impersonal forces, these habit forces of greed and aversion and fear, why wouldn't we want to see them? Right? We should want to see them. They're they're part of the nature of our lives, and to be unconscious of them is to be in danger, really. And then the last is to undertake the training to refrain from indulging in sleep. Like one of the trainings, which I've done at times, is when you wake up, you get up. Doesn't matter. When you get when you wake up, you get up. And uh, you know, you know, oh, I can't get up. It's four o'clock in the morning. Well. Now, this isn't easy if you've got a highly scheduled day, but when you have some downtime, you can experiment. You can say to yourself, well, later in the day, if you need to, you can take a nap. But when you get up, or when you wake up, you get out of bed, and you start your day. And it's just a, a, a monastic training that some monks and nuns do. But you can modify it, find your own way to do it. Like, you, before you go to bed at night, you contemplate how stressed, how exhausted the body and mind are how much you've learned over time your body and mind needs to be healthy, and then you limit yourself to that amount of sleep. Now, nobody's imposing anything. You're just trying to find what, like where that line is where sleep becomes entertainment. And I really, I mean, I know this, I have no doubts about this from observing my own mind, that there is a very clear point where sleep is not about health, it's about entertainment. It's about avoiding life. And uh, so to get up at that point, to start the day, and to see the response or the reaction, like, I don't have to get up. I don't have anything to do. Why are you getting up? You know, as if that should be the criteria when we get up, like whether we have something that we have to do. Then we really know, oh, yeah, I'm using sleep as entertainment. I'm indulging in it. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with indulging in sleep in the same way there's nothing inherently wrong by going home and having a bowl of popcorn. But what's wrong, what leads to unhappiness, is to be driven in life by greed and aversion, unconsciously. So we want to make it conscious. So we see that what's really happening is we're reinforcing the mind's identity to the greed or to the fear which is going to make it more likely that the mind will be identified with the next wave of fear or greed that arises. It will be harder not to just act it out. It would be nice to hear from people now your own examples of working with greed and fear in your own life and in times in your life where you've stood up and by standing up or sort of set up um, or resolve, you really got to see it and to see it as an impersonal force. At times where it was a mess, and it beats you up and drags you away. Because that happens too. Where we fail. We have the resolve, and, but we didn't have enough resolve to stick with it. And of course, any questions that you have about the subject tonight? So what comes to mind? Yeah, say your name. Andrew, um, what you said really resonated. Andrew, I'm also today. The last cannot put it down. I'm afraid to put it down. But I'm also, I know that, so I'm conscious of it, but I'm also afraid to let it go because I'm wondering, the question is, where does the motivation come from if you don't have that constant 
oh, I have to do this, I have to do this. Because it's, it's helpful and then it's motivating, but it's also detrimental that I'm going to break. Yeah. And that's really scary for, uh, for people, not just in school, but, uh, business people and other, and other projects where we rely on a neurotic fear, like, or greed, where we want to be seen as the person who's accomplished this, or fear of being seen as the person who couldn't get it done or couldn't do a good job. And we believe that if we, uh, look carefully at that motivation and the unwholesomeness of that motivation, and then it falls away, that we'll be left high and dry, like we'll be this human blob that can't do anything because that was the only driving force we had available, was to be afraid of being a failure or hoping to be a success. But we have to deal with that at some point in our life. We really have to stare, look carefully at that dynamic because otherwise we spend our whole life achieving things but actually what happens is we're, we're really digging a deeper hole, like a, an existential sense of lack. And there are a lot of very successful people in terms of business, arts, academia, but they're very unhappy. And it's exactly for this reason. And that was that book I mentioned, you know, in my early 20s, um, Being Obsessed by Death. I read this book, uh, Ernst Becker's book. He won the Pulitzer Prize for it, Denial of Death. And it's this whole analysis of how human beings, their achievement, and he, he was great, he's sort of in the psychoanalytic uh, tradition, and so he analyzed Freud and Jung from this point of view, like their own achievements in psychology really were their attempts to deny death. You know, the ultimate, like, to do something, to make my life have meaning, you know, so as if I'll, my ideas will be immortal. And that makes me feel better about mortality. And so he, he sort of analyzed their lives and many people's lives in his own life in this life. And so we don't want to live that life where we're working hard because we're afraid of failure. We want to look for another motivation. But it's hard when we're right in the thick of it. But you could just practice putting it down for five minutes and go look out a window, you know, or just walk around the block and come down, come back to it. So instead of saying, I'm going to put it down for good, just put it down and pick it up, put it down and pick it up, put it down and pick it up. And that's one way to ventilate. It's like that capacity, discovering that capacity to walk away from the fear. Like, I feel this fear that I better get this done, but I'm going to put it down for a while. It's like when you have a really intense email to respond to. You know, you just want to deal with it, right? But maybe it's okay to let life be unresolved for a while. Like this problem. I'm not going to resolve it. And I'm going to be okay with it being unresolved. Yeah, you want to hand up? What's your name? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so, I'm Yeah, well, but basically it's the same thing. 
we're looking at the fear. So if we're afraid of achievement, afraid of speaking up, afraid of doing, then that's how we challenge it. So for some people who are uh, afraid of not doing, then they practice not doing. For those people who are afraid of doing, they practice doing. Because we ha- what we're doing is counter what the mind is telling us to do. Right? Because that's what illuminates, that's what sort of shows up the fear or the greed. So, um, so for people who tend to hold back, then to, to make themselves do it, that's what Ajahn Chah did in this story, right? He was always avoiding doing the charnel ground, waiting for the right charnel ground, right time, right time of year to do it. And then he realized what was going on in his mind, that he was putting it off. So he just stepped forward and did it. Mm-hmm. What happens? This has happened to me sort of like the last few months. It's like what happens when meditation becomes sort of like punishment for yourself, or sort of um, yeah, like not something that we could, you know, Well, basically, we we tend to recreate our patterns in whatever we do, whether we take up meditation or get involved in a relationship or get a job our patterns will express themselves in those places. So it's not an escape to take up meditation. But when we take up meditation, when we take up generally the practice of mindfulness, even though all of those patterns are going to express themselves here, the having the you know the practice of course being grounded in present moment awareness, it's much more likely we're going to see the pattern here Right? So don't be, don't worry if it manifests, if that tendency to be masochistic manifests in your meditation. Because if you're actually following the instructions to be aware of how it is now, you're going to notice how unpleasant and tight it is. And you're going to notice how off the motivation to practice is. So that's the great thing. I wouldn't worry about coming into the practice with bad motivation. Because it should all be exposed in the practice. And that's that's why we take everything to the practice because it will reveal it. That's what the, that's what the practice does. Mindfulness reveals the underlying motivations. So it's inherently purifying in that way because it's hard to be insane. It's hard to be unskillful and be mindful. It's just not really going to work. Now. You could take up the practice but not really do the practice, meaning you could make yourself sit still for an hour a day but not be mindful. And that could be quite masochistic. And people do that, you know. And they punish themselves, like, watch the breath. But they're not really being awake. And they just get tight. There's a great New Yorker cartoon, one of the best, from way back when. I mean, it's got to be at least 20 years old. And it shows an old monk with a scowl on his face and the young, fresh monk next to him. And uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but the young monk you know, looks to the older monk, what happens next? <laughs> and the old monk says, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to, you know, we, we want to be aware of the motivation. So in mindfulness practice, both the formal sitting time and informally through the day, the whole point of the mindfulness is that we learn this ability to turn the awareness back in on itself. So we're aware of the mind that's practicing. We're aware of the mind that's doing the meditation. 
and we're aware of the motivation that's there, you know, and the intentions that are there. Yeah, Lewis, but it has to be quick. You get the last word. It's a short question, actually. What are your thoughts or insights about people who aren't afraid of death or actually afraid of life? Yeah. Well, the Buddha talks about that's just the flip side of the same thing, that we, we crave existence, and in the same way, maybe half of us crave non-existence. We just want it to be over with. We want it to be done. I mean, the ultimate expression of that would be suicide or just giving up in some way. But how many more ordinary ways do we give up? We give up on relationships, right? We're still in the relationship, but for years we've given up. We're not really showing up. We're not really keeping the alive. So we do desire that non-existence in the same way we desire existence. Afraid of existence, seeking non-existence. Or afraid of non-existence, grasping existence. So I think it works. It's the same dynamic. But we don't talk as much about the fear of existence. It's a little bit like what Sarah, I think, was pointing to. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. We'll just take a breath together, let go the words. And appreciating that what our world really needs are human beings that have become more and more fearless, more and more free of grasping and craving. we can take this on as our own study, using our life to experiment how to be free of fear and greed, how to live with wisdom and compassion, how to be a cause for peace. Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Thanks to Marta, our program host. She has a few announcements for us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.